This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Ignis Fatuous Gamers have a somewhat broad, open definition of what it means to be alive. We accept that, in the gaming sense, alive doesn't have anything to do with biology. Things don't have to eat and metabolize and reproduce to be alive. Shambling zombies certainly don't count as alive. Animated statues that attack interlopers in ancient tombs don't eat or breathe. And who can say for sure how baby mimics happen anyway? So we accept a pretty open definition of alive. But we still fall into the standard trap of breaking the world down along a very simple binary. The alive world and the inanimate world. Or rather, living things and background. Dragons and elves and zombies and animated statues and even traps? Those are alive things. They have motivations or seem to and can act under their own power. Basically, if it has an initiative score, it's alive. Meanwhile, furniture, buildings, and terrain? Those are part of the unchanging backdrop against which the games take place. They are the set dressing, or the set themselves. Nothing more. Chairs are just chairs. Trees are just trees. And mountains are just mountains. They're all just there. And that's why a chest of drawers, or a tree, or a statue suddenly turning out to be alive and able to take deadly actions against hapless adventurers always catches us by surprise. It preys on our tendency, as gamers, to see the world in terms of actors against a static stage. And because of that tendency, it's always surprising to learn that something we think of as inanimate is more alive than we think it is. For example, did you know that basically every lake in the world is dying? Surprise! Sure, we think of lakes as pools of water scattered across the landscape, and as such, they are a part of the landscape itself. But lakes are actually very complicated, and so are the corpses they leave behind. So let's continue our ongoing exploration of the natural world by exploring some of the soggier parts of it. Let's talk about lakes and wetlands. Wetlands are another one of those biomes that get a lot of arguments. You remember what a biome is, right? Biomes are the places where life happens. They're the places where, due to similarities in terrain and climate, similar types of plants and animals thrive. Forests, grasslands, tundra, taiga, desert. Those are the biomes we've discussed so far. Those biomes are what we call terrestrial biomes because they occur on land, firm land, or as the Romans called it, terra firma, which means solid land. Got it? But as the idiotic aliens in M. Night Shyamalan's shark-jumping blockbuster signs failed to account for, the world isn't just made up of dry terra firma. In fact, three-quarters of the world we live on is covered in water. Now, most of that three-quarters is oceans and seas. But some of the water on Earth is actually on land, and in those places, we get some very interesting biomes. Or rather, we get some biomes within biomes. 
Many ecologists refer to several different types of terrestrial watery biomes. First, you have rivers and lakes. Then, you have wetlands. And then, you have estuaries. And we're going to talk about all of them, because they are all connected, and they are all a bit more ephemeral than you might think. And in some cases, they are home to the ephemeral. At least, mythically, anyway. Let's get back to that thing we said about how almost all lakes are dying. To understand why we said that, you have to understand where lakes come from. Or rather, how lakes are born. What happens is this. A hole happens in the ground. Almost all naturally occurring lakes begin their lives as terrestrial depressions. That is, they begin as holes in the ground. For example, when glaciers recede, they might carve holes in the landscape. When volcanoes go dormant, or when meteors crash down, they might leave craters. Or when rivers run their course, they tend to carve depressions in the ground. And these depressions fill up with water. See, water, as you may have learned, always flows downhill. And it will always fill up the downest downhill around. Sometimes that water comes from rain runoff, or from rivers. Other times, that water is already in the ground in the form of groundwater. Either way, Take a depression, add some water, and you have a lake. Now lakes are very interesting, and far more complicated than most people realize. First, let's get the technical part out of the way. Lakes and ponds are referred to as lentic ecosystems, which means they are made of still waters. And like all ecosystems, we tend to use the plants that grow there to define the ecosystem. So along the shore of the lake, we see terrestrial plants, the same sort of plants that grow everywhere else. But then as you move away from the shore, you find three different types of plants. Emergent plants are plants that have their roots under the lake, but their stems and leaves grow above the lake. Papyrus, reeds, rushes, and some types of rice are emergent plants. Nearby, you also have floating plants. These plants, which include the water lily, lotus, and water hyacinth, have flat leaves that float on the surface of the lake. Their root structures actually drift freely in the water from beneath the plant. And finally, you have submerged vegetation. And these are all of the plants that live completely under the surface of the lake or pond. And even though these plants are invisible to those of us on land, they are vital to the lake ecosystem. They provide food and habitat for all sorts of aquatic animals, and they help capture suspended sediment, forcing it to settle to the bottom. This is one way that lakes die. Sea lakes have a problem. They are basically just pits in the ground filled with water. As water flows into the system, either from rivers or rain runoff or groundwater, it carries sediment with it. And even though water might flow back out of the lake following the course of other rivers, the sediments tend to settle in the lake's still waters. That means that every lake is gradually filling itself in. And that's not all. Lakes tend to have broad surfaces of still water. That means they heat up, and when water heats up, it evaporates. So every lake is gradually filling itself in with sediment and losing water to evaporation. And so every lake is dying from the moment it's born. Even the Great Lakes of Midwestern America are becoming shallower and losing water to evaporation. It takes a long, long time, but eventually they will be gone. But sediment and evaporation aren't the only way lakes die. Sometimes, plants murder them. 
See, along with sediment, nutrients also wash into lakes. And those nutrients feed plants, especially algae. Algae is tiny floating plant life that makes water cloudy and turns it green. Algae, as a side effect of its photosynthesis, which we've talked about before, provides oxygen. The oxygen dissolves in the water and allows fish and other marine life to thrive. But all of that life, including the algae, eventually dies, and that dead stuff settles to the bottom of the lake. There it is decomposed by bacteria and other organisms, and those things suck oxygen back out of the water. The cycle completes itself when the marine life, deprived of oxygen, dies and settles at the bottom, filling in the lake. The process is called eutrophication, but one ecologist referred to it as the if you give a mouse a cookie effect. If you give a mouse a cookie is a children's book by Laura Numeroff. In the book, she explains that if you give a mouse a cookie, it will demand a glass of milk. If you meet that request, it will ask for a mirror to clean its whiskers. It will then want scissors to trim its little whiskers, and a brook to clean up. Next it will want a nap, and for that it will need a story read to it, and then it will want to draw a picture, and when you hang the picture on the fridge, the mouse will see the fridge, get thirsty, ask for a glass of milk, and then ultimately request a cookie to go with the milk. Thus closing the circle. But plants can murder lakes in even more savage fashion. Some temperate lakes provide a thriving environment for a particular kind of moss called sphagnum moss. It lives on the edges of lakes and absorbs a lot of water. As the moss thrives, it absorbs more and more water from the lake, causing the lake to recede. As the lake recedes, the moss grows further out, following the water and absorbing it. Eventually, the lake is gone, and all that remains is a broad swath of dying, swampy moss. This is the origin of a peat bog. Peat is a soil-like material composed partly of acidic soil and partly of decomposing dead plants. As for a bog, well, bogs bring us naturally around to another form of biome, because bogs are one of the four basic types of wetlands. Wetlands are basically the barrier between land and freshwater rivers and lakes, though that fact is arguable, as we'll soon discuss. And wetlands are pretty famous sites for adventure. After all, after you're done exploring the local forests, if you're not up to the challenge of a desert, you inevitably end up tromping through a swamp. Wetlands are characterized by patches of standing or slowly flowing water interspersed with patches of damp, muddy ground. But what really characterizes a wetland is the type of plant life that lives there. So you have marshes, which are filled with soft-stemmed plants like grasses, rushes, and reeds. These are common in temperate grasslands. Many stretches of the Florida Everglades are marshes. Swamps are distinct from marshes in that they are dominated by woody plants like cypress trees in the southern United States, red maples in the northern United States and Canada, and mangroves in the tropics. Bogs and fens have nutrient-poor soil, supporting mosses and other durable, light plant cover. For example, those peat bogs we discussed that devour lakes? Those are bogs. The difference between a bog and a fen is in the soil chemistry. 
Bogs tend to be very acidic because they receive lots of rainwater. Fens tend to be neutral or alkaline because they receive their water from groundwater or runoff and don't receive much rain. While bogs and fens are similar in appearance, bogs are basically the corpses of dead lakes, and fens are not. Of course, once you start talking about swamps and bogs and marshes, assuming you're a gamer, you absolutely must discuss the classic Advanced Dungeons & Dragons module U1, The Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh. This adventure proudly touts that it is a premier adventure from the United Kingdom and was written by Dave Brown and Don Turnbull. Its publisher, TSR UK, is an interesting story in itself. Originally, in order to avoid the high cost of importing material from the US, TSR, the original publisher of D&D, partnered with UK game publisher Games Workshop. At the time, Games Workshop was headed by Ian Livingston and a man named Steve Jackson. But this Steve Jackson is not that Steve Jackson. See, there's a very famous American game developer named Steve Jackson. The British Steve Jackson was a huge fan of D&D and had gotten famous publishing a series of game books known as the Fighting Fantasy series. British Steve Jackson was so enamored of D&D that he worked out a deal with Gary Gygax and Brian Bloom to distribute D&D products exclusively in Europe. American Steve Jackson, meanwhile, found D&D unsatisfying and unapproachable. He became involved with a competing product by Ken St. Andre called Tunnels and Trolls. Eventually, U.S. Steve Jackson wrote his own fantasy RPG based on richer tactical rules and fewer dice called Melee. After some tumultuous legal actions, Steve Jackson left the company that was publishing his game and founded his own company called Steve Jackson Games. Steve Jackson then became famous as the developer of GURPS, the generic universal role-playing system. Nowadays, though, U.S. Steve Jackson is most famous for trying to prove you can run a game company with just a copy machine and a cartoonist by endlessly publishing knockoffs of its spoof card game Munchkin. But we digress. See, the deal between TSR and Games Workshop, the UK Steve Jackson, fell apart. And when it did, TSR established its own subsidiary in the United Kingdom, TSR UK, headed by Don Turnbull and its most famous original publication was the U series of modules, The Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh, Danger at Dunwater, and The Final Enemy. While these modules have many, many mixed reviews, The Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh boasts a few unique elements that have cemented its importance in the history of D&D publications. First, the story. See, in the adventure, a group of smugglers are using an abandoned mansion as their hideout. And to keep people away, they have convinced the populace that the mansion is haunted. To do so, the smugglers use a combination of ledger domain and illusion magic. While the magic they use is not particularly powerful, it is applied in clever and tricky ways, creating an adventure that rewards investigative and thoughtful play. The second unique element is the town of Saltmarsh itself. 
Set in a coastal plain, the town of Saltmarsh is well detailed and boasts a unique cast of characters, helpful and villainous. This included townsfolk, smugglers, criminals, pirates, and even the local lizard folk and other marsh dwellers. In fact, the town itself became such an enduring setting for adventure that it was utilized in D&D 3rd Edition's Dungeon Master's Guide 2 as an example of how to build a good setting for low-level adventurers. But, getting back to the idea of biomes, we must point out that a salt marsh is technically not a wetland biome. That is to say, a salt marsh isn't a marsh. Well, depending on which particular list of biomes you're looking at. But we're using the one that provides a good segue, and that one says that a salt marsh is an estuary. Estuary biomes are places where fresh water meets salt water, mainly where rivers and lakes meet the ocean. And these biomes are very chemically complex. Here, the water is a mix of salt and fresh water, which is known as brackish water. And the biggest challenge every organism in brackish water environments faces is how to regulate salt intake. As we've mentioned before, balancing salt and freshwater is vitally important for every organism. The murky, brackish water of an estuary challenges many plants and animals and leads them to become very specialized. For example, the red mangrove tree of Honduras actually exudes salt from its leaves when its roots take up too much. Now, as interesting as salt marshes and other estuary environments are. We'd be terrible gamers if we ignored another ephemeral aspect of wetlands. Perhaps you've heard of a ghostly phantom known as a will-o'-the-wisp. Of course you have. In Dungeons and Dragons, will-o'-the-wisps are strange, ghostly fairy creatures composed of pure light. Mistaken for lanterns, they dwell in swamps and marshes and lead travelers into natural hazards like deep pools, sucking mud, and quicksand. As the traveler struggles, the will-o'-the-wisp feeds off the psychic energy of the traveler's terror. At least that's how it worked in 2nd edition D&D. We kid you not. And of course, the details change from edition to edition. But the will-o'-the-wisp is not just another product of a deranged game designer who hates players. No, the will-o'-the-wisp is one of many, many legends about mysterious lights that drift around wetlands, leading travelers to their doom. Because these legends are remarkably common. In England, they speak of will-o'-the-wisps named after a nasty trickster called Will who carried a wisp of burning hay as a light. According to legend, Will was sentenced to wander the world as a shade after leading a terrible life tricking people. His only source of light was that burning wisp of hay. In Denmark, though, they speak of strange treasure lights that drift about the swamps marking the places where ill-gotten treasure has been buried. In other places, they're fairy lights. In still others, they are the souls of dead travelers and are called corpse candles. You might have heard of something called a jack-o'-lantern. Well, that's based on a northern European myth about a figure named Stingy Jack. Again, forced to wander the world as a shade, as penance for a terrible life, Stingy Jack tricked the devil into giving him a burning ember from hell to light his way. He hollowed out a turnip and made a lantern out of it, and then proceeded to lead travelers to their doom with its ghostly light. 
Eventually, jack-o'-lanterns became wards against evil spirits. But the first jack-o'-lanterns were carved turnips, not pumpkins, because pumpkins are native to North America and didn't come to Europe until much later. Collectively, these strange ghostly lights are referred to as ignis fatuus, which comes from the medieval Latin for trickster fire. But this just begs the question, why are there so many accounts of ghostly marsh lights from so many different cultures over so many long centuries? The fact that we need a collective term to gather up all these myths and legends suggests there must be something there, right? Well, there are so many eyewitness accounts of ghost lights in marshes, swamps, and wetlands that scientists have been trying to figure out how these things could be possible. Numerous theories have been proposed, and some have even been tested in laboratories. These theories involve burning gases, strange electrical phenomena, luminescent chemicals, and even the mysterious phenomena of ball lightning. And while several experiments have proven that the right mix of natural conditions can produce glowing balls of gas, chemicals, or electricity, there's no one definitive explanation that fits all eyewitness accounts. How can you use any of this in your game? Well, it's important to remember to realize that the world is alive. Even the things we think of as permanent parts of the world are ephemeral, transitory, and in flux. And the world is often deceptive. Lakes and ponds that seem still on the surface hide complex ecosystems that go through life and death cycles. Just like what might appear to be an ordinary statue or treasure chest is actually a deadly monster. Or what might appear to be a haunted house might actually just be haunted by an illusionist with a penchant for privacy and a flair for the dramatic. But then, it might really be haunted. And those ghostly lights in the window could be real ghosts. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com.